The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12 at verse 18, where we're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. We come this morning to the last portion of the main body of the epistle, and then chapter 13 is concluding exhortations and greetings. Let us come to God's word with hearts prepared to hear what his word says. Hebrews 12 at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages should be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. It is no small thing to persevere in the Christian walk. It is no small thing to keep holding to Christ and trusting in Jesus through all the trials and tribulations of this life, through all the temptations and fears and doubts, through all the discouragements and the ups and downs. We've seen in the past weeks how these believers addressed by the book of Hebrews needed much solid teaching to give them strength to keep holding fast to Christ in their local world where there was persecution going on. But this same word that they received is a strong exhortation to us as well. 
So today I want to look at this text under three points. First, a great encouragement, verses 18 to 24. Second, a final warning, verses 25 and 26. And then a call to worship. And just so you know, each point gets shorter as we go along, so don't be distressed. First, a great encouragement, verses 18 to 24. What is this encouragement? We could sum it up by one of the middle verses of this text, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. You have come to Mount Zion. Here in these verses, we are given a great contrast. On the one hand, we have a description of of Mount Sinai. Verse 18 describes, you have not come to what may be touched. The author doesn't actually mention Mount Sinai by name, but clearly that is what he has in view because no one was allowed to touch the mountain of God as the law was being given. The mountain that can be touched. We're going to get to Mount Zion that cannot be touched physically in this life. But there's this contrast, this contrast between these two mountains, this powerful summary of God entering into a covenant with his redeemed people whom he had brought out of Egypt through the Exodus, through the Red Sea. Yet it is a mountain that is dreadful and terrifying to behold. And that is because that covenant was a true manifestation of the covenant of grace, but it was temporary and it was weak. It was temporary because it looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the only mediator between God and sinners. And it was also weak because nothing that was wrong with the law and the covenant itself, but because the law did not impart the power to obey the law. It was weak because of the sinfulness of our human hearts. And so the message of Mount Sinai was that of the unapproachable nature of a holy God without the right mediator. But by contrast, when we look at the picture of Mount Zion, it speaks of full access to this same God into his presence and with this joyful assembly through the mediation of Jesus Christ and through his precious blood. Let's briefly look at these two mountains to receive encouragement about our free access to this great God, this holy God. We see in verses 18 to 21 this picture of Sinai. You have not come to what may be touched, this emphasis on what may be touched. And later on it said, that even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. When the Lord descended to speak with Moses and Israel, there were boundaries put around the mountain. It was off limits to be touched because the mountain was blazing with fire and smoke and gloom and a tempest, a storm with lightnings. Can you imagine the scene? And with the blast of a trumpet would have been the ram's horn blaring louder and louder. Reminds me of video you watch of a volcanic eruption with that plume of ash and cloud. Now, this wasn't a volcano. It was a theophany. It was the manifestation of the presence of the living God on the mountain in fire and smoke and gloom. And this trumpet blast. And then 
Finally, we see in verse 19 a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. The people begged Moses, please tell the Lord God not to speak to us. We don't want to hear it. It made them dread that they were going to immediately die or perish. It's interesting that the verse mentions this issue of even if an animal, even if a beast touches the mountain, it doesn't mention that humans likewise could not touch the mountains. Of course, they were to understand this boundary, but even the animals are specifically mentioned here to underline the strictness of the command of God that nothing should touch the mountain where God dwelt. And then it says in verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Even the great Moses, and by the time of the writing of this epistle, Moses was so greatly honored as probably seen in in the Jewish world of that day as the greatest figure in the Old Testament. But here we have Moses, even Moses, trembling with fear. And so the overall picture we get of Mount Sinai is that believers couldn't draw near to God directly. We might say there was this distant access to God. In Exodus 24, we find that Moses and the elders go up on the mountain and see the feet of God and, and have another form of a theophany, an appearance of God, but they're only seeing the feet of God, whatever that meant. So there's this distant access. The, the covenant of Moses foreshadowed the blazing glory of the fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so this striking contrast, paralyzing terror on Mount Sinai, and yet extraordinary joy in Mount Zion. And that's where we pick up the contrast in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Interesting, past tense. As we hear Mount Zion described, we almost feel like, wait, we're not part of that assembly. That's a heavenly assembly. There are innumerable angels in festal gathering. There are the spirits of the righteous made perfect, believers who have died and gone to glory, and their souls are with Christ and are perfected without sin. But the tense of the verb is this perfect tense, speaking of a past action that has continuous results. You believers are identified as part of this wonderful assembly. There's this sense of what's often been called the already but not yet nature of the New Testament, that believers have already come to Mount Zion. They've already been seated in heavenly places in Christ, but we have not yet experienced the final culmination of our identification with heavenly Zion. The fullness of Zion is not yet ours, but we belong there. We are part of Zion. If you read through the Old Testament, you see lots of references to Zion and Mount Zion. That was a part of Jerusalem that David captures, we find in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, and it becomes part of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, Zion, that phrase Zion or Mount Zion, is God's holy mountain where he especially dwells. And of course, we know the temple was built in Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God on earth. 
Many of the Psalms talk about Zion and link Zion to the city of God. Psalm 48, verse 2, the city of the great king is Mount Zion. Or Psalm 102, verse 16, there's this promise that God will rebuild Zion. And in Psalm 110, verse 2, we're told that the Lord and his Messiah reign from Zion. Psalm 125, Zion will not be shaken or destroyed, but will endure forever. And then in the book of Revelation, we find out more about this description of the New Jerusalem, which is the city of God, or Mount Zion, in Revelation 3 and Revelation 21. And so believers look forward to this city of God, but they have already come to this city in one sense. You have come to Mount Zion. And here we find that believers' names are enrolled in heaven. But the climax of it all is when we come to verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Interesting comparison, isn't it? If we go back to Genesis 4, we know that Abel's blood, Abel was killed by his brother Cain. Abel's blood, we're told in Genesis 4.10, cried out from the ground. I think we're to conclude that it cried out for vengeance, for justice, because he was unjustly killed. And so it's a, it's a cry of condemnation. But by contrast, the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, that blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, Christ's blood cries out not condemning us because of our guilt, but declaring us cleansed because of his blood. It's a cry of forgiveness, of redemption, a better word than the blood of Abel. And notice that this description of Mount Zion also describes God, the judge of all. Why does the passage refer to God as judge? Is that intended to give condemnation or fear? Well, it certainly says that God is the holy judge of all. But this is a paragraph that's stressing the joy of coming into the heavenly assembly, the joy of being in the presence of God. And it's probably because that mention of God, the judge of all, reminds these struggling, persecuted believers that they will be vindicated and they will receive justice on that last day. They have escaped the judgment and we have escaped the judgment of God through Jesus Christ. And so we will not be condemned on that day. And it reminds us not to take this joyful access to God lightly. Don't think lightly of it. God is the same God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. There's not two different gods. His character has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Joy is that, and Mount Zion is the access believers have to the same God because Jesus has come. What a picture we have of these two mountains. What a great contrast. It reminds me of the difference we see in Galatians 3.24 and following where Paul is speaking about the law as our guardian, in a sense our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ. The guardian or the school 
master was like a, a disciplinarian, a tutor to lead the young child to grow in knowledge and in character. I had a, a very strict teacher in second grade. I still remember it. One time she caught someone acting up in class, and it happened while she was facing the blackboard, and she knew somehow what was going on behind her. She told us later that she could see us in the reflection of her glasses. Now, we wondered about that. Is that really true, or is she just telling us that? But none of us were willing to test the limits on that one. We controlled ourselves. I look at Mrs. Reynolds as an illustration of the law, ready at any moment to punish. And I'm sure that we as rowdy boys needed that law. The law reveals our sin. But Jesus has come with the fullness of his resurrection and his power of the ascended Christ so that now believers have living access to God, the very presence of God. And as we've seen, seen in, earlier in Hebrews 12, with the declaration that we are sons of God, with all the rights of sonship. The fact that we have come to Mount Zion should really be a great encouragement for all of us, shouldn't it? If we have come to Christ, if we've trusted in Him, then there, there is this real sense in which we have already been made a part of the heavenly assembles, the heavenly assemblage, with angels, with the spirits of those made perfect, even though it's not culminated, we belong there. And yes, we still live in this broken world, and that full transformation still awaits our glorification, but we're told that that is certain because of what Jesus did. Think of how these persecuted Christians would have been strengthened to continue to boldly profess Christ in their culture, in their towns, possibly at great cost, possibly even at the cost of death itself. You think of our missionaries that are in sensitive areas and you read about those nations and you know that believers are being killed in many parts of the world. We have come to Christ. They have come to Christ. And so we are citizens of the new Jerusalem that will one day be revealed to all. What an encouragement for all of us to live for Jesus Christ, however hostile the culture might become. Well, secondly, we see a final warning in verses 25 and 26. And it's interesting that the book of Hebrews has some powerful warnings, and this is the final one of those series of warnings that begins early in the book. And the warning is this, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And then we have the logic of this warning given in the rest of verse 25, for if they did not escape, that's the Israelites at Mount Sinai, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that was the Lord speaking on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. You see the comparison here. If they didn't escape, and we know that many of the Israelites did not have faith and they died in the wilderness, in that wilderness wandering, they hardened their hearts against the Lord. Many of them did. Some did not. But 
The words that God had spoken had dire consequences if they rejected him. The covenantal curses would fall upon them. He had promises for them as well. But it was a sobering thing to refuse to hear God's voice. And so we have this contrast. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Who is that? Who is this that warns from heaven? It could be God the Father speaking through his word, but more likely it's a more direct reference to Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord, because we've already been told in Hebrews a number of things about Jesus and the heavens. We find in chapter 4 that Jesus passed through the heavens, and in chapter 7 that Jesus is exalted above the heavens. In chapter 8, we've seen that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So most likely, we're to understand that Jesus is speaking to his people from heaven. That reminds me of the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, where Jesus is walking among the candlesticks, representing the churches, and he speaks to the seven churches of Asia Minor there. And his message is recorded for us. Jesus is speaking from heaven. And he's speaking through his written word in the Bible. He's speaking to his people to help them in their journey. And also speaking through them, through the gospel. As the gospel is shared by God's people and preached by his appointed preachers. I want all of us to think about and understand the importance of the warnings Scripture contains. We tend to read along and read a warning like that and think, well, does that mean I shouldn't have any assurance that I'm saved if the Scripture warns like this? No, that's not the point. What can we say about God's warnings? God's warnings are designed to awaken His people to danger. And here in the book of Hebrews, uh, we've seen that God's warnings are particularly aimed at helping the people not to give in to the temptation to abandon their faith. There was actually that strong temptation to conform and to give up their profession of Christ. You see, the function of warnings is to disturb us while promises encourage us. But together, warnings and promises both serve the same purpose, and that is they help the people of God to persevere in faith in Christ. And we need both. The promises we especially love, but the warnings we should love as well. They're like good medicine. I was saying to Patty the other week, why can't they make cough syrup taste good? You know, no cough syrup ever, ever tastes good. The warnings are good medicine for us. They may not taste very good and they may go down hard, but the warnings are not here to discourage us or make us despair or take away our assurance. They're to give us hope and um, to wake us up from our dullness of heart and especially there to warn us so we are not bewitched by the world around us. I think of the character Puddledlum. What a great name, Puddledlum, in Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's children's series and especially in the book, The Silver Chair. There's a point in the story when the queen of the underworld, she's bad, is weaving her spell with her smooth and deceitful words. She's lulling the children in Puddledlum to sleep so she can control them. And Puddledlum has this vague awareness that he is about to be bewitched by her lies. And what does he do? He sticks his hand in the fire. 
And that, that searing pain awakens him to their danger, and he's able to resist the wicked queen. Those bewitching words are finally seen for what they are, a pack of lies. Well, Christians need the warnings of the Bible to function in the, in the same way, to help us, to keep us on the right path. We are not to reject our Lord Jesus Christ who warns his people from heaven. It's a gracious thing. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is speaking to each one of us here this morning through his word. Yes, the messenger is a weak and sinful messenger, but it is Jesus who is speaking in some way. He promises to do that. If you've never come to Jesus Christ, if you've never come to Mount Zion, the message to you is believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ. Give him your life. Submit to his gracious reign as the king of all. Trust in him for your salvation. And he will renew your life. Give you eternal life. And if you have come to Jesus Christ, the message is very similar. Keep trusting Jesus Christ. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Very soon you are going to be in the new city of God, the Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem. So hold fast, whatever the hardship, whatever the temptation. Maybe you say to yourself something like this. Well, if God would really speak to me, I would believe the gospel. If God would speak to me with an audible voice, I would believe the gospel. But let me just ask ask you this. Do you see what the Bible is saying about that? The argument is from the lesser, the Israelites, and what they heard, the warnings, and the greater, Jesus speaking from heaven now. Our passage is telling us that if right now, above this soundboard, or whatever it's called up here, that my grandkids always wonder is going to fall on me when I preach, but if suddenly there was somehow a blazing fire that started to form up there, and, you know, one of those Hollywood effects with gloom and thunder and lightning, And suddenly, you heard the voice of God thunder. That would be pretty scary, right? But the Bible is saying that is not as clear and as powerful as the fact that God has spoken in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe the historic record of Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his wonderful life of miracles and compassion on the weak and the poor and the sick. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead with hundreds and hundreds of eyewitness testimony recorded in Scripture and preserved for us wonderfully, if you don't believe in the speaking of Jesus Christ in history, then honestly, you would not believe if God thundered like that. The Bible is telling us that. In fact, Jesus had similar words to Lazarus, When Jesus says, oh, have someone go back and tell my brothers. And Jesus says, if they do not believe the law and the prophets, they wouldn't believe that. In other words, the word of God is sufficient. And you have the word of God in Jesus Christ. You may be just turning away from it and thinking it's no big thing. And maybe someone has disproved it through the Da Vinci Code book or movie or something like that. I really don't have to give heed to that. You do have to give heed because Jesus is speaking 
from heaven through his word. And even such a great manifestation and awesome presence of God in the sanctuary here would not begin to compare with what Jesus says to us. Let me ask you a soul-searching question. What voices are you listening to in your life? There are all kinds of voices all around us seeking to tell us who we are, what our identity is, what we should really be, how we should really find meaning and purpose in life. What does it mean to be fulfilled? Voices seeking to interpret our lives for us. And you get it every day in lots of forms. And most of them are twisted and wrong in some way. But Jesus Christ, the shepherd of our souls and the only true king is speaking to us in the word of the gospel, in the word of God. And he calls us to believe in him and trust in him. In Luke 12, verse 32, Jesus says to his disciples, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And that brings us to our final point. We've seen this great encouragement. We've seen this final warning. But as the author talks about the shaking of the heavens and the earth that is going to take place, that's going to take place on the final day of the return of Christ, the removal of things that are shaken, everything that defiles, everything that is sinful will be removed or purified. He says this as our right response. Verse 28, Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, thus, let us worship, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Our final point is that the Bible gives us a call to worship. That is a calling of the Christian life to live in such a relationship to God that every day you are worshiping and adoring with reverence and awe, with gratitude that you've been given the kingdom. You've been given entrance to the kingdom over which Jesus reigns and which one day will be declared openly for all and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That reality should cause us to worship, to live lives of gratitude and praise with the realization that the kingdom is an undeserved, precious gift. Worship is our only right response. And whether you acknowledge this reality or not, you must realize that you are always worshiping something. Every day of your life, human beings are designed and made by God to worship. We will worship something lesser than the true God if we do not worship Him. We will worship most likely other people who are created in the image of God. We will worship them by seeking their approval or their love or exerting power and control over them. Or we will worship money or comfort or popularity or success or the pleasures of this world. The list goes on. We are worshiping beings. And the very last quote of our text, as it talks about worship, quotes Deuteronomy 4.24. And that is a text When Moses is calling on the Israelites, they're about to enter the promised land. And he's calling them, don't give in to the false worship of this world. Don't give in for them to the idolatries of paganism of their world. But it applies just to us as well. 
And the reason that Moses gives that he appends to that command is this phrase, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is jealous for our worship. We all owe him worship every day, but his people, especially who've been bought by the blood of Christ, are now able to worship God through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. And our worship is acceptable and pleasing to him because it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is coming a day when God will shake the heavens and the earth. Are you ready for that day? Are you a member of the city of God? If not, may you trust in Jesus Christ and so become a member of that happy multitude by faith in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for this picture you've given us of where we really belong, of where we're really going, where we're headed. Thank you that already our citizenship has been given to us, stamped in the blood of the Savior, purchased at great price. Oh Lord, thank you for the precious blood of the Lamb. Thank you for the free and full salvation you give to any who will trust in him. Oh Lord, awaken us to your word. Show us who you are. Help us to walk this week worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.